Hi, and welcome to another episode of A Shot Glass of Recovery with your host, Julie, half of the dynamic duo that brings you the podcast, Two Sober Chicks. Well, hey, y'all. It is October 22nd, 2022. Oh, that's cool. It's 10-22-22. And today happens to be my ninth year of continuous sobriety. How amazing is that? I like I literally can't believe it. That that's impossible. I remember my second meeting where uh okay, so we'll just backtrack. I remember my first meeting. I had uh gone to a treatment center in Canada, one of the best treatment centers in Canada of which I was a volunteer at for 8 years. Um my 10th, okay. <laughs> Let's backtrack. I entered the rooms 11 years ago. And I have nine years of continuous sobriety because I relapsed at two years sober, obviously. Uh, that's a whole other story. But 11 years ago, I hit rock bottom and I went to a the one of the foremost treatment centers in Canada. It is in Toronto, Ontario. And I was a volunteer there for about eight years. Um, I did every volunteer program that you could do. I did outpatient um, liaison. I did greeting. I did the meditation class. I did pros and cons. I did uh, my story. I did the step one, two, three rooms. Like you name it, I did it. I steadily worked my way up as as a volunteer and was offered a job many times, but I loved it so much that I didn't want to have to do it out of the work out of a paycheck out of an obligation and I also liked being my own person and being able to make my own schedule and do it on my terms so anyways this treatment center uh, did an evaluation on me I filled out the paperwork they said I was absolutely an alcoholic and that I could start treatment in about three months and I was devastated and um As I was leaving, the intake coordinator said, but, you know, we do have AA meetings downstairs and they are ever every I'm just going to say like Sunday and Wednesday night. And I was horrified as well because I had never considered AA. Uh, I didn't like that. I was told that that was an option. And so I left pretty dejected, went home, went on another bender next morning, said, "I, I, I have to do whatever it takes. Like I'm desperate. So I walked into this treatment center and in the basement was where the AA meeting was. And I was so ashamed and embarrassed and I had a pashmina on and my hair was hanging um, on either side of my face. I was looking at the ground and I looked down the hallway where the meeting was and the door was open and there was a woman standing there and I was shocked, absolutely shocked because I thought AA was a bunch of old men and which were predominantly homeless in park benches, drinking out of brown paper bags. And there was this beautiful, glowy, shiny woman. Um, What I thought she was in her 40s, she had curly red hair. And she immediately took me under her wing and told me when we sat down that when they called the 24-hour or desire chip, I was supposed to get up and go get one. I remember feeling very overwhelmed. I didn't remember, I didn't download or even understand or comprehend any of the meeting. 
And when that moment came, I was too much to my surprise, I stood up and went and got this chip, which was not me. I can tell you that because I would never have done that in a room full of people. And the guy that gave me my chip, he um, shook my hand and gave me this chip and gave me the little 12 steps, the little white book that they give with the 12 steps and 12 traditions. And I think the preamble, he said, congratulations, you're officially my favorite alcoholic. And people were uh, clapping and patting me on the back and touching me. And I didn't like that at all. I thought they were crazy. I didn't want to be touched. I wasn't happy. I wasn't smiling. I was crying. I was crying so hard. I've never seen anybody more of a mess than I was on that day. And I have been to thousands and thousands and thousands of meetings. I have never seen anyone as much of a mess as me. Not, listen, I've seen people in really bad condition, but I've never seen anyone bawling with tears and snot and shaking. And it was, I was bad. So that was my first meeting. We broke up into groups. It was the one, two, three study group. And then it was the rest of the steps. And this woman said, you're coming with me. You you need to start in the beginner room. And we sat in a circle. There's probably 11 of us. Her and I were the only women. And the book was passed around and people read and then would talk about how they identify with the reading. And I could not believe that people felt like I did. They drank like I did. They had the same thoughts and feelings that I did. And it was my first identification. Thank God it happened in my first meeting because I don't know if I would have went back based on everything that had happened until that moment. So my first identification was with older men, which is amazing. And that's why I went back. Now, the second meeting, and this connects to me saying it's absolutely crazy. It's been nine years. My second meeting was a speaker meeting and a man got up and he was in that treatment center. This was a meeting that was put on by a group of um, members of the outside and members on the inside. And they're wonderful people. I will always have a deep place in my heart for them. This man stood up and started telling his story. And I don't remember if he said that he had been sober for nine days or nine months But whatever it was, I remember thinking, he is an effing liar. There is no way if he is an alcoholic that he has not had a drink for nine days or nine months. I didn't believe it because it was impossible to me that someone that identified as an alcoholic or at that point for me had a drinking problem could not not drink for any period of time because I couldn't. At the end, I didn't even want to drink, and yet I would find myself crying as I opened up a bottle of wine to pour myself a glass. And as we know, it's not the first drink that gets you, it's the first drink that gets you drunk, because I knew that the second I put alcohol in my body, it was over. It was absolutely over. And now I've been nine years continuously sober, 11 years in recovery, and I can tell you it's not impossible. It's very doable. And for me, at least, the longer I'm sober, the easier it is, Um, which some people's experience is not that. But I think about, I was uh, talking to my neighbor yesterday. I live just outside of Nashville in Tennessee now, and I live in the country, and the people in the back, huge acreage, um, I've become very fond of. Well, that's not true. I've become fond of the wife. I adore her. 
And, you know, I don't know her well, but we talk quite often when we see each other. So she pulled up beside me in her white pickup truck, and I was in my husband's white 16-passenger van that only has two front seats. And um, she was talking about what she had bought with her paycheck, and one of the things was she had to go get her husband's cigarettes. And I said, oh, he smokes? And she's like, yeah. And I said, oh, I miss smoking. I haven't. I stopped smoking when I was 27. It's been a long time, but if it wasn't so bad for you, I'd start doing it like today. But I said, you know, it only, and she said the same thing, that she sort of, she quit a long time ago, and she'll see his cigarettes, and she'll want to do it. And I made a comment how, but you know what happens after one, that's it, it's on, and it doesn't go anywhere good from there. I said, it's the same with drinking. Um, I haven't had a sip of alcohol for nine years, but I know, I know if I took a sip, it would be over. That's how my relapse happened. It was one sip after two years of continuous sobriety and everything in me went, oh my God, I remember what this tastes like. And it was on. It wasn't on for long. It was, I think, two weeks. And in the span of those two weeks, I think I drank three or four times. Uh, First time to no hangover, the other time's the hangover. That's got to be one of the best gifts of recovery not having a hangover. Man, do I love that. But now I'm at an age where if I go to bed too late and I wake up, I feel exactly the same as if I had a hangover, just not tasting the booze or having the shakes. So all I can say is I am so grateful to this program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the fellowship that I have found in it, and uh, most importantly, the higher power it introduced me to, because without all of those things, working the program, the fellowship, and my higher power and service, Um, I wouldn't be where I am today. And this podcast is part of that service, but it doesn't even feel like it because I love being with you guys. So I'm going to continue on with my series of story time. And we are reading from the stories in the back of the big book. Today, we're reading uh, story eight from part two. It's on page 338. And the title is Because I'm an Alcoholic. This drinker finally found the answer to her nagging question, why? I suppose I always wondered who I was. As a child, isolated in the country, I made up stories, inventing myself along with imaginary companions to play with. Later, when we moved to a large city and I was surrounded by kids, I felt separate, like an outcast. And although I learned to go along with the cultural norm as I grew up, still, underneath, I felt different. Alcohol helped. At least I thought it helped until I saw the oppressive 30-year shadow it cast on my life. I discovered it in college, and although at first I didn't drink often, didn't have the opportunity, whenever I started, I drank as long as there was any alcohol around. It was a reflex. I don't remember liking the taste, but I liked that it seemed to bring me to life and get me through a date or a party able to talk. It moved me outside of that hole I felt in myself and lowered the wall I created between me and any person or situation that made me uncomfortable. For 10 years, through college and graduate school interspersed with jobs, I drank periodically, so it was easy enough to think that I was a social drinker. Looking back, I see that alcohol helped me construct an image of myself as a sophisticated metropolitan woman, diminishing my feelings of being a backward country girl. I studied vintage wines and selected them with care to accompany the gourmet dishes I learned to make. I read about the correct drinks for various occasions. 
I learned to put just the tiniest whiff of dry vermouth into my martinis. Meanwhile, my tolerance for alcohol grew, so that while at first I got sick or passed out, as time went on, I could hold larger quantities without any visible effects. Until the next morning's hangover. Beside the facade, my real life seemed just out of reach. I wanted to consider myself grown up, but inside, I felt small and helpless, hardly there at all. I would look at my friends, delightful, interesting, good people, and try to define myself through them. If they saw something in me that made them want to be with me, I must have something to offer. But their love for me was not a substitute for loving myself. It didn't fill the emptiness. So I continued spinning fantasies, and now alcohol fueled my dreams. I would make great discoveries, win the Nobel Prize in medicine and in literature as well. Always the dream was somewhere else, further off, and I took a series of geographical cures in search of myself. I was offered a job in Paris and jumped at the chance. I packed my trunk, left my apartment to my boyfriend, and sailed off, thinking that at last I would find my real home, my real self. I began to drink daily and rationalized in France, of course, you have to have wine with meals. And after dinner, after the wine, then there were liquors. My journals and letters bear witness in the deterioration of my handwriting as the evening wore on, drinking as I wrote. It was there, too, that I first became dependent on alcohol. After work, on the way to the Alliance Francaise for classes, I'd stop at a bistro for a glass of cognac to give me the courage to get me there. My need greater than the embarrassment of being a woman drinking alone in the 1950s. One vacation, I went to visit friends in Scotland, traveling slowly through the English and Welsh countryside. The bottles of cognac and benedictine I'd brought as gifts for them, I drank in the little hotel rooms miles before I got there. As long as it lasted, I could stay out of the pubs. Europe hadn't proved to be the change that would repair my life, and I started west again. It was in Cambridge that I pronounced my first resolutions about cutting down. New Year's resolutions I recycled for a dozen years, while my drinking and my life kept getting worse. Alcohol had enslaved me. I was in bondage to it, although I kept assuring myself that drinking was a pleasure and a choice. Blackouts began, vacant places in my life when hours would disappear lost to memory. The first time was after I'd given a dinner party. The next morning, I woke up without remembering that I'd told my guests goodnight and gone to bed myself. I searched the apartment for clues. The table was cluttered with dessert dishes and coffee cups. Bottles were empty and the glasses too. It was my custom to polish off any drinks that were left. My last memory was sometime during dinner. Did we ever finish? But there were the plates. I was terrified that I'd done something horrendous until my friends called to tell me they'd enjoyed the evening. One time, we sailed from Guadalupe to a little island for a picnic, swam to shore from the ship. After lunch and quantities of wine, I was with a French ski instructor talking to a troop of small boys on their way home from school, trying to explain to those tropical islanders what snow is like. I remember them giggling. The next thing I knew, I was back at the camp, walking to the dining room, apparently after swimming back to the ship, sailing to the port, then taking a rickety bus across the island. I had no memory of what I had done during those hours in between. The blackouts increased and my terror increased with them. 
Telephone bills would inform me that I'd made late-night calls to distant places. I could tell from the numbers whom I'd called, but what had I said? Some mornings, I woke up with a stranger who had brought me home from a party the night before. These things weighed heavily on me, but I couldn't stop the drinking that had caused them. That too gnawed away any remnants of self-respect I might have had. I was incapable of controlling my drinking and my life. I needed a drink to go any place, to the theater, a party, a date, and later, to work. I would leave my apartment, lock the door, and start down the stairs, and then turn around and go back in for another drink to get me where I'd planned to go. I needed a drink to do anything, to write, to cook, to clean the house, to paint the walls, to take a bath. When I passed out and fell into bed early, I woke up at four or five and had Irish coffee to start the day. I discovered that beer was better than orange juice to ease my hangover. Afraid my colleagues or students suggested, whoops. Afraid my colleagues or students would smell my breath at work, I was careful to keep my distance. When I got up late and rushed off to the lab, fortified only with coffee, my hands shook so badly it was impossible to weigh out the milligrams of compounds needed for an experiment. When I went out to lunch with another alcoholic, we might never get back to work that day. Somehow, I managed to keep my job and most of my friends, social drinkers who were urging me to cut down on the alcohol. That counsel only made me mad, but I was concerned myself. I asked the therapist I was seeing, sometimes with beer in hand, would I have to stop? His answer was that we had to find out why I drank. I'd already tried but was never able to find out why until I learned the answer in AA. Because I'm an alcoholic. With my attempts to cut down, I stopped keeping alcohol around the house, drank up whatever was there over and over, deciding not to get more. Then on the way home after work or an evening out, I'd have to see if I could scrape together enough money for a bottle. There were liquor stores just about every block, and I rotated them so the salesman wouldn't know how much I drank. On Sundays when the liquor stores were closed, I had to make do with beer or hard cider from the grocery. The horrors grew. Inner horrors. On the surface, it looked as though I was more or less keeping it together. But day by day, I was dying inside, filled with fears I couldn't name, but which shook me to the core. My worst fear was that I was an alcoholic. I wasn't sure what that was, except that I might end up down on the Bowery in New York, where I had seen drunks curled up on the sidewalk. I made another New Year's resolution to stop drinking entirely until I could handle it. And then, I told myself, I could go back to wine and beer. Hands trembling, body shaky, head splitting, I survived that first day until I was fairly safe in bed in an alcohol-free apartment. Somehow, I made it through a couple more days, miserable in withdrawal. In spite of managing to stay dry that time, I have no doubt that resolution would have crumbled like the others and I would have been drinking again if... I hadn't found AA. I had left the therapist who hadn't been able to tell me why I drank, and on New Year's Eve, I went to a party at the home of my new therapist. A few days later in the group, the therapist said, you're drinking even more than I realized. You're an alcoholic. I think you should stop drinking, see a doctor, and go to AA. My resolution had endured three days, and I protested, I'm not an alcoholic. That was my very last denial. Say it the other way, he suggested. I am an alcoholic. 
It came out in a whisper, but it sounded right. I've said it thousands of times since, and with gratitude. What I was most afraid to admit that evening was what would set me free. The therapist told me then and there to call someone who had been in our therapy group, a doctor on the staff of a hospital alcoholism service. I'll call her tomorrow, I said. Call her now, he said, and handed me the telephone. When I asked her if I was an alcoholic, she said that from what she'd seen of my drinking, I might be, and suggested that I talk with her boss. Terrified, I made an appointment and kept it. She told me the symptoms of alcoholism, and I had them all. She gave me a list of AA meetings and recommended one. I went to that meeting, a small women's group. I was scared and in withdrawal. Someone greeted me and I muttered my name aloud. Someone brought me a cup of coffee. People gave me their phone numbers and urged me to call, to pick up the telephone instead of a drink. They were warm and friendly. They said, keep coming back. And I did. For weeks, I sat in the back of the rooms, silent when others shared their experience, strength, and hope. I listened to their stories and found so many areas where we overlapped. Not all of the deeds, but the feelings of remorse and hopelessness. I learned that alcoholism isn't a sin. It's a disease. That lifted the guilt I had felt. I learned that I didn't have to stop drinking forever, but just not pick up that first drink one day, one hour at a time. I could manage that. There was laughter in those rooms and sometimes tears, but always love. And when I was able to let it in, that love helped me heal. I read everything I could about this disease I have. My readings recounted the course I had lived and predicted the way I would die if I continued drinking. I had access to a good medical library, but after a while, I realized the genetics and chemistry of the disease were of no use to me as an alcoholic. All that I needed to know about it, what would help me get sober, help me recover, I could learn in AA. I was blessed to live in a city where there were meetings at all hours of the day and night. There I would be safe. And there, within a few blocks of my apartment, at last I would find the self I had traveled thousands of miles in search of. The slogans on the walls, which at first made me shudder, began to impress me as truths I could live by. One day at a time. Easy does it. Keep it simple. Live and let live. Let go and let God. The serenity prayer. Commitment and service were part of recovery. I was told that to keep it, we have to give it away. At first I made the coffee and later volunteered at the intergroup office answering telephones on the evening shift. I went on 12-step calls, spoke at meetings, served as group officer. Ever so gradually, I began to open. Just a crack at first my hand on the door ready to slam it shut in a moment of fear. But my fear subsided too. I found that I could be there, open to all kinds of people from this solid base that we shared. Then I began to go back out into the world, carrying that strength with me. I found that now I could do many things without a drink. Write, answer the telephone, eat out, go to parties, make love, get through the day and the evenings sleep at night, and get up the next morning, ready to begin another day. I was amazed and proud to have gone a week without a drink, then a month. Then I lived an entire year sober, through my birthday, Christmas, problems, successes, the mixtures that make up my life. 
I healed physically, felt good, my senses returned. I began to hear the delicate sound of autumn leaves rattling in the wind, to feel the touch of snowflakes on my face, to see the first new leaves of spring. Then I began to heal emotionally, to experience feelings that had long been so deeply buried they had atrophied. For a time, I floated on that pink cloud. Then I cried for a year, raged for another year. My feelings returned and then began to settle down to reasonable size. Above all, I healed spiritually. The steps took me on that path. I had admitted I was powerless over alcohol, that my life had become unmanageable. That was what got me through the door. Then I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And eventually, I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood God. Years before, in my search, I had explored numerous religions and dropped them because they preached a patriarchal God, which I felt never included me. Alcoholics Anonymous, I was told, is a spiritual program, not a religious one. Through my years of darkness, some spark of spirit remained in me, helped me survive until I found my way into AA. Then, nurtured by the program, that inner spirit grew, deepened, until it filled the emptiness I had so long felt inside. Step by step, I moved to a spiritual awakening. Step by step, I cleared up the past and got on with the present. AA is my home now, and it is everywhere. I go to meetings when I travel here or in foreign countries, and the people are family I can know because of what we share. As I write this in my 28th year of sobriety, I am amazed to look back and remember the woman, or child, I was then, to see how far I've come out of that abyss. Alcoholics Anonymous had enabled me to move from fantasies about what I might do with my life into living it one day at a time. In my first move, that was not a geographic. I left the city and moved to the country. I left research and became a gardener. I discovered that I am a lesbian and that I love women. I'm fulfilling a long-time dream of writing fiction that's being published. But these are things I do, aspects of the life I'm living in sobriety. The most precious discovery is who I really am. Like all of us, a being far beyond any of the ego selves, any of the fantasies I'd made up. That sense of being different, which had long plagued me, disappeared when I saw the threads that run through all of us. Sharing our stories, our feelings, it is the areas where we are the same that impresses me. The differences are but delightful flourishes on the surface, like different colored costumes, and I enjoy them. But the basic ways we are human, the basic ways we simply are, stand out to me now. I came to see that we all are all are really one, and I no longer feel alone. Well, that is amazing. I can't even tell you how many notes, highlights, check marks, and arrows, and underlines, and hearts I had in this story. They're all truly amazing. Um, what I liked particularly was the genetics and chemistry of the disease were of no use to me as an alcoholic. I myself wanted to know the whys, and thank God, came around to the place where the whys don't really matter. That's not the work in AA. Um, whys are great in therapy and uh, trauma uh, therapy, but in terms of being an alcoholic, does it really matter if it's because my parents were alcoholics or not? 
I mean, my parents are alcoholics, <laughs> by the way. It's not lost on me that I have nine years of recovery, uh, 11 years of recovery, nine years of continuous sobriety under my belt. And my parents are currently seeing their, I don't know what number addiction therapist this is after their last crazy binge, which ended up in the police kicking down their door on a wellness check. It's a, it's a story. It could be a movie. Not sure many people would believe it. Um, but I haven't spoken to my parents since then, not because I'm punishing them or I'm angry at them at all. I'm just not ready to go back into the fray of what it means, which is the discussion of, you know, we're sorry, this is what we're doing, we're never going to do that again, like that whole thing is exhausting. And when I do finally reconnect with them, which will probably be soon because my dad's birthday is coming up and I'll probably call them, uh, I'm just going to have to say I'm sorry, I don't, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to know about it. That's your work. Just I pray that you go and do it so that you can get on the other side of this thing finally after God, many, 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 my whole life of that kind of behavior. So I'm especially grateful in light of that, that their daughter was able to um, dig herself out by giving herself over, really, because that's what it takes, right? What a beautiful story. I'm so glad I was here with you on my nine-year soberversary and that we could share this time together. Um, even though I'm in my husband's studio in our home and you are, I don't know, driving, walking, laying down in bed, um, whether you've had a good day or a bad day, because of our fellowship and what we share and what I'm sharing, I feel like we are connected. So I don't feel alone, even though in this moment physically, I'm alone. I feel bonded to you all and I so appreciate your support and your love and I just want to encourage you today to keep going. You don't know what's on the other side, none of us do, of one day or one hour or one prayer. So keep praying and keep trudging our happy road to destiny and we will speak with you. Lisa and I will speak with you very soon.